I invite you to do, there's six versions of it, and I'm posting it on the uh, church Facebook page uh, each week so you can see it, because I think it's a really good um, kind of modern version of the story. We are going through Hosea, and uh, tonight we're actually going to cover about three chapters just in themes. Um, so let's start off with the Word of God, and William is going to uh, operate that for me. And then we're going to kind of just hit some of the themes. We're not going to read all three chapters right here. I would encourage you to read it on your own, though. Uh, it should take you about 30 minutes, depending on how fast a reader you are. Some of you are faster than others. I'm a very slow reader. It takes me about 35 or so. Uh, but you can read the entire book of Hosea, all 14 chapters of it, uh, in about 35 minutes or so. So uh, the entire third chapter says the following. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about an omer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with, with me many days. You must not prostitute or, in, or be intimate with any man. And I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterward, the Israelites will return and see the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Now, because of the fact that we're, we tend to go through a book of the Bible at a time, uh, there are times where it repeats itself. And Hosea has one central theme that goes throughout it. As a matter of fact, all of Scripture has one central theme that goes throughout it. But Hosea is really big on this. The first three chapters tell the story that everything else hits on. Uh, for those of you who are mus- musicians, I learned a term this week. And it kind of it's a musical term that describes what's happening here. It's called cantus firmus. And it's actually from Gregorian chants. What? It's okay. I, I laugh at Eric's face all the time also. No. It's pretty much Eric's face. Um, so, Cantus Firmus. Is that what he made the face over? Over Can- It's okay. Because a lot of people don't unless you study Gregorian chants. Uh, but you've seen examples of it. Gregorian chants will have a base... Not, not bases in the sense of lower uh, clef, but a, a foundational tune that everything else bounces around and, and on. So they'll be singing this. Yeah, I should not do that. But they'll be singing that and then other people will add to it and they'll add other flourishes and, and lower things. But this base story, this foundational story is what's there all the time. You see it in some of the songs we sing every now and then. Eric will, will lead us in songs that are old hymns that, truthfully, usually Chris Tomlin has said, hey, I can take an old hymn and add a chorus to it and I can make a little more money off of it. But, but we will sing an old hymn that all of us know that is then slightly reinterpreted by a new chorus to it. There's a foundational story that, that runs throughout it. And in Hosea... The story of Hosea and his wife is this foundational story that everything else that we read comes back to understanding this story. And the story is Hosea loves this woman and she is completely unfaithful to him. Matter of fact, last week, uh, I 
think it was Juliana that had asked, you know, do, do we know that she uh, was, uh, was adulterous beforehand or not? And we don't. She's described as an adulterous woman. We kind of think that. But she goes from probably cheating on her husband to not only cheating on her husband, but she basically sells herself into a brothel. And this is not a good brothel. Uh, not that there is a good brothel. <laughs> like, oh, that's a good brothel. <laughs> what I'm meaning is, is uh, I'll just stop. <laughs> Actually, we'll come back to that in a little bit. I want to introduce you to one word, though. I think it's the most dangerous word in all of Scripture. And it's this. And. I think and is the most destructive word in most people's faith. Because and... Well, here, there's a wonderful series of commercials that are going on right now that, that point out the good side of and, but they never point out the bad. Here, here it is, and we're going to try this because this may mess up too because of that one cable. Imagine choosing a seat seven or get break Wet or wild. You want the hose or the bucket? Bucket, I guess. That seems lame. I like and better. Yeah, like I said, the, the cable didn't do real good, but you've probably seen these commercials. My uh, personal favorite, which I didn't download, is is they're talking about, you know, you've got this and that, and they say it'd be kind of like sour without sweet, because I love sweet and sour. And they go to this, this uh, Asian food restaurant, and they get sour chicken. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is this? It's sour chicken. Is it not good? And they, they are, are, are saying, you know, no, you need sweet and sour. And is a really great word in some things. But in our faith, it is an absolutely terrible word because it's, it, you know, it's Jesus and nothing else. But so often what happens in our faith is it's this and that. And in the history of Israel, they didn't usually just forget God. They were almost always adding other things. I think when you use Gomer as an example, and Gomer as the unfaithful wife, as an example of Israel, God and his relationship with Israel, what you see most of the time is, is that, well, they form this, this and relationship where they go, oh, we'll serve God and the Baals. We'll serve God and the Asherahs. And it doesn't work that way at all. And, and God gets ticked off in Hosea. I love it when God gets ticked off. We kind of cover that up quite often. In church, so often, we are so used to referring to the Bible as the good book that we forget that meaning it's good is the results it produces, not that it's the nice book. So often, we treat it like it's the nice book. Um, I was talking with uh, the leadership team last week. I don't think I've mentioned this in here, but it's always funny to me when churches will do uh, festival things, i.e. alternative Halloween alternatives, and they'll say, dress in a biblical costume, as though that's not going to be scary. But if you ever read the Bible, I mean, you could do amazing costumes. One of the things that, that kind of ticks me off now is, ladies, like all of your costumes are basically slutty versions of something. And if you if you went somewhere and said, hey, just biblical costumes, oh, there are plenty of people that you could do in the Bible that would just be, you know, risque versions of, of other things. Uh, or you want scary, I would love to go someplace that said only biblical costumes and I would go as the beheaded John the Baptist. That would be an amazing, just an absolutely incredible costume. What are you doing? You're scaring the kids. You said biblical costumes. See, so often we treat it as though 
the Bible being a good book is just, it's nice. But God gets really, really ticked off quite often. Most of you who are threads know that my favorite book in the Old Testament is Amos. And it's because God reaches a point where he says, you ladies are all just a bunch of cows. I just love that. Not that you ladies are all a bunch of cows. You are not. I just think it's funny anytime somebody calls a group. Of... Never mind. Okay. In this case, God. Whoops. Oh, see, I changed my slides. This is how we know. Yeah, I should never do that. I changed them afterwards. Uh, and I don't like working on the, the tablet. This is how we know that she was not in what I just referred to earlier as a good brothel. Okay. What I mean was she was not in, in a brothel where she had any power at all. Uh, it says in chapter 3 that Hosea went and bought his wife back and he bought her for uh, 15 shekels of silver and basically about the equivalent of 430 pounds of, of grain. That's less than a slave. If you look in Exodus, a slave typically is bought for uh, 30 shekels of silver. It's an insult to, uh, uh, to Jacob when he is sold into slavery uh, that he is sold for 20 shekels of silver. She was in a situation where she had been used and abused because of her actions. So we know that she was in a terrible situation and it was because of her choices. Uh, I got to look at my next slide. And those uh, those uh, situations enslaved her. These were her choices, but they led to this in, this in slavery and her life was probably not just chaos, but awful. All because of the fact that she was following an and. This is what God says. He gets ticked off. And he basically starts a charge against Israel. He says, you know, hear the word of the Lord, word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. And if you read the next three chapters, they basically read as though God has gone to court. And he is, I know, it's Judge Judy. I like Judge Judy, okay? She's, I think she is, if I remember right, the highest paid person on TV right now. Yes. Yes, I'm not sure of that. She's one of them. But apparently people like their daytime court TV. But if you read the scripture that we're reading, God is really, he's coming before the Israelites and he's saying, we have a trial here that's going to happen. And this trial is against you because you are not faithful to me. You saw the video. It's kind of a retelling of, of Gomer. But Gomer is always supposed to represent the Israelites. And, and sometimes it's real easy for us to think that was them back then. What does it have to do with us? But the church, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, those who, of us who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, we are the people of God now. So when something is said to Israel, most of the time it points to us also. And it's this reminder of we have to remain faithful. And when we don't, we are committing spiritual adultery. In this case, God condemns the priest first. He, he jumps on them. As a matter of fact, I love this in this, this scripture. He says, the more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. And I think the disgraceful aspect of it is not that they were completely ignoring God. They, most of the time they weren't. Do you know anybody who likes to hedge their bets? Do you know anybody who, who in the middle of a football game 
will, will promise that they were rooting for the team that's now winning, even though you know for a fact that they were rooting for the other team when it was winning earlier. There are people who hedge their bets. I don't gamble. And the main reason I don't gamble is because I would probably win one time and that would be enough to convince me that I was a winner. Those of you who know me know that I'm a loser and therefore I would win one time and then I would gamble and gamble and gamble and lose everything. I don't make bets because we would be in the poorhouse. There's not even a poorhouse in Stevens Point. So we would be in the nothing and it would be terrible. But, excuse me, there are people who hedge their bets. To be honest, if you go on Facebook, you see it. Anybody here been on Facebook where somebody said, hey, if you say this prayer to Jesus, this will happen in the next 30 minutes. And, and every now and then, you'll see somebody put underneath it. I don't believe in this type of stuff, but you never know. Hedging your bets. Even though God doesn't work that way. God is not going to be bribed by you doing certain activity to make him do something else. Actually, I would describe that as witchcraft. Witches say if you do this, this happens as a result. You are controlling the spiritual natural uh, by doing certain activities. But God doesn't work that way. But still people are like, you never know. It happens all the time. Anybody ever got an email saying that Bill Gates was going to give away like $50 million to people? And, and then they send the email and they say, well, I doubt this is very true, but you never know. It's hedging your bets. And most of the time, the Israelites were hedging their bets. They didn't completely neglect the worship of Yahweh. They didn't completely neglect the worship of God. What they did was they added other stuff to it. They, they didn't just forget about the temple where they would uh, were to go and worship God. What they would do is they'd take other high places and they would do sacrifices to Baal and to Asherah and to Dagon and the other gods because they were hedging their bets. Matter of fact, since it was an agrarian society, you could say, well, they were just being good farmers. You know, they were just making sure everything was covered. But God doesn't work that way because ands never work with faith. So, instead of just ignoring God, they were always adding to. Yeah, I'll follow Yahweh, but I'll also do this. And God condemns the priest for, for it first. Now, it's not just the priest that he condemns. He also condemns... Well, pretty much everyone, if you look at it, you got the priests, you got the, uh, the Israelites, you got the royal family. That pretty much hits everyone there. But in this case, he starts off by condemning the priest and saying, you're not teaching what you're supposed to teach. You're, you're teaching that, that people can do this and that's all that's necessary. The word I would use for it is, is that they, they were teaching obligation. That if you just do what you are obliged to do, that's okay. In, in uh, the ancient Near East, it would have been certain religious rituals that they have to do. Not that we would ever do anything like that at all. But they would do these rituals. So they would sacrifice to Yahweh on Saturday. And then they would sacrifice to Dagon. I, truthfully, I don't know what Dagon's holy day is. But we're just going to say Monday because Monday stink. And therefore, he would pick a bad day. And maybe sacrifice to Baal. Yes, sir. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I actually don't even know if this is a painting the wall. It could just be a hook for hanging something there. Sorry, Pete. What? 
You're messing everything up. Sorry, the sermon's done now because Pete asked a question. <laughs> so, I know now, because I'm wondering. I was like, well, I didn't notice that earlier. You know what it is? I, I completely forgot. It, it, no, it's the Sumerian unicorn, Mary. That's entirely what it is. So, yeah, thank you. The picture's up there because they were just doing ritual. Ritual is this wonderful thing for ants. Because if you think about it, ritual just says if you just do this, it really doesn't matter what else you do. There, there are things we do on that where it's like it doesn't matter anything else you do if you just do this one thing. Some of your schoolwork, for those of you who are students, teacher ever given you something like i don't care what you do just finish this and it's this terrible thing when it comes to faith and it's a terrible thing when it comes to relationships those of you who are married those of you who have been married if your spouse said you know i love you and someone else that's not a good thing i would think not nobody's disagreeing apparently (laughs) like nah, it's okay (laughs) no but, yeah. Is a but really that different from and? You think? No, I'm saying, actually, in some ways, I would say, I would say they're very similar. I love you, but not this. Okay. Yeah. All right, so. Now, it's so easy to condemn the ancient Near East and say they were just doing this. But the problem is is that the priests were teaching that if you do the ritual, that's all that matters. As long as you do this, that's what matters the most. Rather than teaching even, even then that it is all about a relationship. And we're, we're still tempted to do that. it's always a little weird to me because if you're not here on a Sunday, I want to convey to you, you were missed, but I don't ever want to convey you you should feel bad about missing. And so every now and then, if somebody's not here, I'll say, hey, we missed you such and such night. And do you know what usually happens? Not, Not any of you because you're all above this. They start making excuses. And I feel terrible because I'm not saying, oh, no, 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 you have to be here on Sunday night. I, I hope you are here on Sunday nights because it helps you to follow Christ. I hope you are here on Sunday nights because you know that you need to be interwoven with other people to, to best be able to follow Jesus Christ. But let's face it, it can still become a ritual. I'm a good Christian if I go to church these amounts. I was actually in a church once that got rid of its Wednesday evening service. We don't have Wednesday evening services because we do small groups and we do Sunday nights and we do service. And that's about it. We try not to do a lot. But for some churches, Wednesday evening is a big, big deal. And we got rid of our, our Wednesday evening services so that people could go out and visit other people who did not know Jesus Christ. A wonderful reason. But it started a fight in the church because there's a saying that, that uh, goes around in the church world. Like, uh, you, you know how popular you are based on Sunday mornings. 
you know, how faithful people are based on Sunday evenings, you know, how truly committed uh, of followers of Jesus Christ you have based on Wednesday nights, which is a terrible saying. It's an absolutely horrific saying. Because what's the emphasis but on saying Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Sunday or Wednesday night? Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I never heard Jesus say, you will be you know, known as a follower of mine if you go to church at these times. He said, you know, your love for one another. There's a huge difference between I go here because I have to go here and I come here because it helps me to follow Jesus through the rest of the night and I love these people. There's a monstrous difference between the two. But in this church, it started a fight because they're like, we can't get rid of our, our Wednesday evening service because if we do, we'll be bad Christians. Huh? We were getting rid of our Wednesday evening service so that you could go out and visit people who didn't know Jesus Christ, which I actually think is very God-honoring. I think it's something Jesus would want to do. I think Jesus would be the worst pastor the world has ever known because instead of being at church on Sunday morning and preaching the service, he would be going and meeting with somebody who was in real need. Where's the pastor? It's time for the sermon. Oh, he's with so-and-so because they had a family member die. And the church would be like ticked off at Jesus. It's just my thought. We still do the same thing. Do you know how many times I've been asked if we were a cult because we don't have Sunday morning services? It's, it's, it's more than, than we'll count on my hand. I don't know. <laughs> no. So... See, this, this evening has just gone down the pot. And I, I blame Pete. Um, <laughs> so guys, here's, here's why I, I want us to focus on this. Because God was condemning and judging the priest and saying that they were leading his people away. Matter of fact, I love this line because he says, As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. Uh, they murder on the road to Shechem, uh, carrying out their wicked schemes. If you have the message, uh, the way that it provides it is this, is gangs of priests. I just have this picture of, of priests. Matter of fact, I, truthfully, I, I think they look, probably look like this. But what they were doing is they were so focused on their own thing that they were not focused on following God. They were focused on ands. I don't care what you do during the week as long as you come and do your sacrifice. I don't care what you do during the week as long as you come to the temple and you pay your temple coin, your temple tax. I don't care what you do during the week as long as you do the ritual. That's a terrible, terrible thing. See, I think that there's two temptations before us. When we, when we talk about spirituality, when we talk about faith, one is obligation because it seems so spiritual to, to do certain spiritual things. It seems so spiritual to pray at certain times. It seems so spiritual to, to read your Bible at certain times. Those are excellent things. You should pray. You should read your Bible. Those are wonderful things because they help you to connect to God. But if they don't help you to connect to God at all, they're just ritual. You can pray and not connect to God. One of the, the best theologians in American history is a guy named Paul Tiliak, and I am probably butchering his name. He's at the University of Chicago. You may not know this, but the University of Chicago uh, started out as a Baptist institution. One of the best schools of theology in the nation still. And Paul Tiliak 
wrote amazing theology that changes uh, the way most pastors think on things. But if you asked him who he was praying to, and he, he would say he would pray for two hours a day, he would say that he was praying to being. Being. B-I, excuse me, B-E, B-E-I-N-G. Being. He, he would say he, he prayed through the Christian tradition because that's what he was raised in. I don't know about you, but I don't spend two hours a day in, in solitary prayer. Was this prayer connecting him to God? I don't think so. I would tell you, he studied the Bible more than I ever have, and I feel like I study the Bible a lot. Was his time reading the Bible connecting him to God? I don't think so. See, those are excellent activities when they connect you to God. I believe that the, the, the Word of God is powerful. It is like a two-edged sword, able to cut through bone and marrow. It, it is able to cut into our lives and point out truth and, and expose darkness to light. But if we just do the activities, they're just ritual. We are a, a what would be called a free church. We come from, from a combination of uh, the, the magisterial reformation and the radical reformation. That's more church history than you need to know. Though church history is amazing and you should read about it. It's really, really cool. And you're wrong, Joe. It's really, really cool. Okay, The radical reformation is really cool because it's the best and the worst of the reformation all in one. Uh, you have people who are starting wars and people who are pacifists. Just incredible. Um, but as a free church tradition, we like to say, oh, we don't have ritual. But let's face it, we have tons of ritual. And when the ritual becomes most important, it's real easy to, to add other stuff with an and. I mean, those of you who come here on Sunday evening, how many songs are we usually going to sing before I, before I speak? Yeah, usually two, sometimes three, tonight one. How many songs are we usually going to sing after I speak? Yeah, usually three. Oh, but we don't have any ritual. None. It, 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 some of you might remember the night that there was just a chair set up and you walked in the room. And some of you might have remembered some of the fear that may have popped in your head like, oh my goodness, what's happening? Because we get so used to that ritual because you can do that and not have to interact with God. You can do ritual and everything else. Obligation speaks of and. Obligation speaks of limited relationship that you can then add other things to. But do you think, do you think we put in these obligations because we, just, because we don't want to connect with God? Or do you think we put in the obligations because that's the most comfortable way for the way that we live anyway? To have set things, that, you know, to have a schedule. What do you think? I, I think uh, generally we do it because it's easier. And I think God is scary. He's good. But I think He's scary because He changes things. Those of you who have been following uh, Christ for quite some time, you may have had an interaction with God where you, you suddenly knew that you, you thought you knew exactly what He wanted you to do and He changed it. To me, that's scary. <laughs> I mentioned this, not too common, but I mean, like when I and my family moved up here, we moved up here not knowing any of you wonderful people. Um, and it was utter terror because we knew Pam had a job, but that was about it. 
And I had left employment where we, we, were, we were just great. I don't know that we do it because we're like, oh, I don't want to interact with God. But a controllable God is so much more non-scary than a God that we love. My wife is the scariest individual to me, and that sounds wrong, and she's not in the room right now because she's, she's uh, with Charlie right now. But what I mean is this. Interact with you. If I upset you, it upsets me a little, but it's not the end of the world. If I upset my wife, I'm in the same bed with her at night. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's never kicked me out yet. <laughs> See, obligation is one thing, but love is so much more terrifying. Guys in the room, think of the stupid stuff you have done because you were in love with somebody. Ladies in the room, think of the stupid stuff that you have put up with from guys because you were in love with them. Makes it sound like I have a higher opinion of ladies than I do guys. That would probably be because it's true. But, (laughs) see, love does not speak of and. It it speaks of all. And is if you provide me my limited amount, you can have this. Love is I want every last little bit of it. I think that's scary. I think that's that's terrifying sometimes because just when I think I have given him all, just when I feel like I have said, Jesus, I will follow you everywhere and to use a biblical analogy, uh, I have taken my nets and I have thrown them down and I have left the boats much like uh, many of his disciples did. Just when I feel like that, suddenly I begin to realize, oh no, there was one little small little thing that I was holding on to for security and he's saying, God, uh, Robert, I want that also. If I'm your God, I want you to trust in me and trust in me alone. Every time I think I have given him all, I begin to realize there's just a little bit more that I haven't quite given to him yet. And he's just waiting. He just wants it. So what does that have to do with, with, uh, with Jose and Gomer? <laughs> Remember I talked about Acantus Firmus. That story that goes underneath it. See, the story of Jose and Gomer, it's a wonderful story on its own because it's a story of, of a spouse who cheats on another spouse and that first spouse goes and redeems and goes and redeems and goes and redeems and will not give up, continues to love and, and fights for the person who has betrayed them. That's this wonderful story on its own. But the whole point of the story again was to point out God's relationship with His people. To point out again and again where we betray him, we, where we choose other lovers to use, uh, use the story of Gomer, uh, Jose and Gomer there. We choose other lovers and our choices lead us into our own slavery quite often. They lead us into our own destruction. Think of it a lot like a drug addict. You choose a drug and then the drug begins to, to make you choose it over and over and over again. And some of us in the room have dealt with drug addicts and most of them want to quit more than life itself and they can't. If you used to smoke, think of how difficult that was. You reach a point where you're like, the last thing I want to do is smoke and all my body is craving (laughs) is smoking right now. 
See, this analogy, this cantus firmus is the story that goes through it all the way through it. And what we have to remember is with our and so often we choose other lovers besides God. God is there saying, I wish to give you life and I wish to give it to you fully. And we go, that's great. I want that. And then every now and then we choose another lover. God, I trust in you. You are my Savior. You are my Lord. You are the one who has complete control. And then every now and then we trust in another lover. I don't know who, who said it. I would love to give them credit. Uh, but I, I once heard uh, your God described as that which you trust in, that which you sacrifice for, that which you worship. And I would love to tell you that the only one that I trust in, the only one I sacrifice for, the only one I worship is the Lord God. But I have made other choices because I'm covering my bets every now and then. I, I've chosen my, my skills. I've chosen my abilities. I've chosen my resources. I've chosen other people's resources. I've chosen popularity before, which didn't work out real well for me. Just look at me. But I have chosen that before. I have chosen that if I could be a part of a certain crowd, that would work. If I had a certain look, I have said, oh, I trust in you, God. And then I said, and this. So often I'm kind of like one of my favorite scenes in in one of my favorite movies. It's a movie that Steve Martin did when he was young uh, called The Jerk. Love The Jerk. And he, he breaks up with his wife for a brief moment. And in the breakup, She's saying, you know, you've changed, you've changed. And he says, I don't need anything or anybody, but I need this. And he grabs a lamp and he starts to walk out and he says, I don't need anything or anybody except for this lamp. And I need this. And he grabs a telephone and I don't need anything or anybody, but I need this. And he grabs you know, something else and he goes through it again and again and again. And so often I'm saying, I just trust in God and this. But God is wanting all of us. And that should be scary. I think sometimes we make Christianity out to be way too easy. It's not easy. But just because something's scary doesn't mean it's not good. See, to really give your all is to, well, it's actually to do like this. To throw yourself as an offering. An offering is consumed. An offering is placed on on a brazier, is placed on on a fire and is consumed. You don't put a little part in and then just reach back in and grab it. (laughs) And Scripture says that we should, should, um, in view of God's mercies, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That we are constantly saying, God, I want you to take all of it. And that, if, that should affect every last little bit of your life and my life. And I don't know about you, but my problem is, is quite often, I get selfish and want to keep some of it back. God, I'll follow you in this, but not... Okay, and I mention this every now and then, so you should know. Not in the way I interact with, with the idiots that drive around me. You're going to see me ticked off driving a car with me and see somebody be stupid. Everybody in Stevens Point likes to drive in the left-hand lane rather than the right-hand lane. 
Apparently that doesn't bother y'all because nobody, you know, even smirked. But it bothers me. God, I'll follow you except for the way I treat people who uh, don't drive in the way I want them to. God, I'll, I'll follow you and I'll sacrifice for you as long as it doesn't mean me having to sacrifice in the middle of an Alabama football game. God, I'll sacrifice for you and I'll follow you as long as it doesn't mean that I have to sacrifice for you uh, 30 minutes after I get off work when I'm tired. Here's what I love. The cantus firmus is, yes, we, we turn away from God, but he'll take us back. See, the, the three chapters that we've just kind of bounced around on a little bit, God is, is throwing a court case and he's like, I'm just fed up with you. I'm tired of you do, choosing this and. Yes, you are following all these other gods. But then you hit chapter 6 and again it says, Come, let us reason to the Lord or return to the Lord. Like he's torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. Uh, he has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. Uh, that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. See, the cantus firmus constantly is, yes, we turn our backs on God, but He will take us back. So, before I end by telling you how I think this should matter for our lives, Anybody have anything to add? Yes, sir, Pete. Yeah, it could be. You're right. I think God has the same standard, but but uses different measures with us quite often. What He expected of me when I first uh, first met Him was all of me. I just didn't realize what all of me looked like at that time. Anybody else? Okay. Then I don't want to be condemned as a a priest who leads you the wrong way. Especially since I'm not a priest. But I don't want to be someone who who teaches you that it's okay for you to follow God and follow all these, these other things. So therefore, I want to remind you of some simple things I've reminded you of before, uh, which I think are just brilliant, on, on ways to see where Jesus is at, at work and to react to those. Uh, a lot of you guys know that um, this guy is a hero of mine. He's a guy named Mike Iaconelli. Uh For those of you who have been in the church world at all, if you've ever read anything by Youth Specialties, which is the largest youth publishing house along with a thing called Group, uh, he was one of the uh, co-founders of it. Uh, he died in 2007, if I remember correctly. No, 2005. Uh, but he's this great, amazing guy. And he wrote a book called The Disciple Experiment that I bring up every now and then. 
Because I think the beauty of it is this. If we're constantly trying to give ourselves fully to God, um, you try to do that, but you need some easy guides on what does giving myself fully to God mean in the midst of cops? Does it mean that I should just you know, put my hands out like this and go, Jesus, I'm here for you? Or does it mean I should look for opportunities to be involved in what Jesus would do at that moment? So here were his guidelines for spotting Jesus and knowing what Jesus would, would do in the midst of a situation. He said there were, um, were, my mind just went like four or five things. I've got them up here. First one is this. Whatever Jesus did, he upset people. If you read the New Testament again and again, Jesus had a tendency to upset everybody. He upset his family. He upset his disciples. He upset his enemies. He upset those who loved him. It's just this incredible thing. You know, Jesus is, is, uh, is the one who taught us that God is love, and yet so many people hated him. So often we think whatever Jesus would do would just be nice and calm. But uh, the sacrifices Jesus calls us to can be upsetting students jesus could call you to do something that your parents are like no (laughs) no parents jesus could call you to do something that your kids were like no (laughs) no don't give up that security no jesus so often does things and it upsets people here's the other guideline he had when when jesus did something it was costly it's always funny to me how, how so often in the church, Jesus tells people to do something that costs them absolutely nothing. I heard something the other day. You know, God gave me the sign that I just did the right thing by giving me a flower. Well, what did you do? I didn't go here. That cost you nothing. But if you look at what Jesus did, was he said, come follow me to his disciples, and his disciples left their careers. Just to use my, myself as an example here, if I came here next week and said, hey, by the way, God has just told me to disband the church, and which I couldn't do legally as a church would have to do it, but if somehow or another I could, I said, just disband the church and we're just going to give all the money uh, to, to meet this one need and I'm going to Canada. Eric would probably respond with, that sounds great, Robert, I never liked you. Anyhow, get out of here. But hopefully most of you would be like, whoa, Robert, you should slow down things. Because usually Jesus asks us to do costly things. We'd like him to ask us to do things that don't cost a lot. The other thing that that Mike Iaconelli said was, when Jesus did something, people's lives were changed. Jesus didn't just do insignificant things it is not a story of a nice guy walking around doing nice things during the day it is a story of a guy who says i am the way the truth and the life and he lives a life that is so dangerous that the roman empire and the jewish authority decide that he must die changed people's lives the other thing he said was, Jesus spent a lot of time doing nothing, which is actually something. We're so used to, in the church world, thinking we have to do more and more and more. That's part of why, as a church, we do Sunday evenings and small group and service. <laughs> because, truthfully, we should spend more time living out the church than we do church activities. And the last thing is, Jesus failed. At least it looked that way. I can't tell you how often I hear churches judge whether or not something is successful by whether or not it succeeded. I know that sounds like, well, you should view it that way. But if we really look at Jesus' life, the only reason we know it's not a failure is because of Easter Sunday. 
wonder if the disciples would be considered successful since all but one of them was killed for their faith. So what I would encourage you to do is this. Maybe it's not a temptation for you to add other things. To go, I'll follow Jesus here, but I'll do my own thing over here, which is Jesus and myself. Maybe that's not a temptation for you. But i got a strange feeling for most of us in the room. Quite often the temptation is to go, you know what, I've, I've been doing enough of Jesus and I'll just do my own way. Rather than letting him challenge us every second of every single day. I actually imagine for some of us in the room, it's real easy to think, oh, that's so great that Jesus is challenging them and we never actually think, is he challenging me? So my encouragement is this. This week to ask a very simple question. Jesus, what would it look like for you to be the only thing I followed right now? And I would actually change that. I said thing. I would say, Jesus, what would it look like for you to be the only one I followed right now? Where no one else's desires mattered. Your own, your friends, your family, your enemies. What would that look like? I think the guidelines I just kind of, or the hints I just gave you from Mike Eckenley would be a good way of, of pointing on that because I think he would lead us this next week to do things that, uh, that are dangerous and costly and change people's lives and sometimes look like we're not doing a lot when in fact we're doing a whole lot and sometimes look like we fail when in fact we actually change. But I know if we do that, it won't be Jesus and anything else. It'll be all Jesus. Why don't we pray and sing to the one who wants all of us? Join me in prayer, please. Father, forgive us for the times that we have not given ourselves completely to you. Help us trust in the fact that you will take us back and you will completely redeem us. And help us to follow you fully. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Guys, let's, let's sing together.